When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, hello, friends, and welcome to episode 143 of the Burden of Command podcast. I'm your host, Earl Brian. The Burden of Command podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what we do at The Leadership Phalanx, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. Today's guest is Sean Dowdell. Sean is known as the Tattooed Millionaire, which was the title of his first book. In addition to his role as founder and CEO of Club Tattoo, he is also a drummer with the band Grey Days. He is a frequent speaker to a variety of audiences and has been featured in Entrepreneur, GQ, Billboard, and on CNBC, A&E, and more. His wife, Thora, who will be a guest in a few episodes, uh, comes in more on the marketing and sales side of the business, and we'll talk to her in a couple of episodes. But they work together as a husband and wife team, and I've authored a new book titled Brand Renegades, Our Fearless Path from Startup to Global Brand. And that's exactly what we're going to really focus on on this conversation. So again, this conversation is going to be with Sean, uh, but we're going to have Thora coming up here in a few episodes. So with that, let me go ahead and get out of the way, let that stinger play, and let you get into this outstanding interview with Sean Dowdell. Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on today. I appreciate it. Oh, I'm like I said, I'm really excited. But I got to start you off before we get into the conversation with the same spot I start all of my guests. When you hear the phrase burden of command, what does that mean to you? The responsibility of leadership is what that means to me. Okay. A, uh, a, a long answer, but I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. I think that when you're a leader, the burden of command implies that the responsibilities are yours and yours alone to make sure that you are a good leader and giving whoever is underneath you on your team the tools and support that they need to do their jobs properly. No, I love that answer. That is a great answer. Um, and, and it's it's so true, right? I mean, it's so true. Being in that, that position is... It's a position of support. It's a position of empowerment. So I like that. I like that definition. So before we get into talking about uh, brand renegades, as I mentioned, you are, and I've used this term before, kind of tongue in cheek, but you are literally a rock star, right? I don't describe myself that way, but I understand where, where you, yeah, I'm in the music industry and, and I uh, had, had some success and I uh, love playing music and yes, I'm in the music industry. Well, brother, I tell you right now, from on the outside looking in, whenever you get a chance to jam with uh, the likes of Chester Bennington, uh, Monkey, Head, all of these people, you're a rock star in my eyes. So I I appreciate what you do. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Well, and let's talk about this for a second, if you don't mind, because, you know, being a kind of a veteran based podcast, I get a lot of veteran listeners 
Uh, veteran suicide epidemic comes up quite a bit. Uh, being as close of friends as you were with Chester, uh, do you have any kind of words of advice or anything of, of people who are, are are friends of somebody who may be going through some of these these types of situations? Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, obviously losing my friend, you know, put shed light on a lot of things I could have maybe done differently as a friend. And, you know, sometimes what I've noticed in, in analyzing the people that I've admired throughout the years that have taken their own life, Chester being one of them, Chris Cornell, Robin Williams, you know, um, they generally are really happy on the outside and they don't really give you signs that necessarily um, are speaking to an action they're about to take their own life. So I think you have to, as a friend or as, a, as an observer, is look for little things that may or may not be tells uh, as to their, their current state of mind. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean that someone's about to take their own life, but, you know, getting way ahead of this on the mental health side, I think, is really important. It's not always at that last stage when someone has decided to take that step, are you going to be able to step in? So if you can do what I call preventative maintenance and just check in on your friend's mental health and see if there's something that's bothering them that they can't quite work through. Um, most of the time, in my experience, and, I, and I've lost a couple of people to, to um, suicide at this point, it really comes from a, uh, a, a pain point in their life that they are just unable to cope with and a feeling of inadequacy. And those two things um, combined end up are the catalyst that actually make them take that final step. So if you can at least get in the heads of the people around you a little bit and try to understand some of the painful moments that they're having or the painful thoughts that they're having or the trauma that they've had in the past and deal help them deal with that and let them know that it's okay, I think that will go a long way to hopefully avoiding uh, somebody taking that action on their, uh, on their own, uh, on their own life. Yeah, no, that is powerful. What you just said. I mean, unfortunately knowing a few folks who have, uh, who have committed suicide myself on the veteran side of the community, I think that's exactly it. I mean, some, some of the things on the outside can just look so glued together still right up to that final moment. Like if I got the story straight, like uh, you guys were getting ready to put uh, Gray Days kind of back together right before uh, Chester took his life, right? Yeah, we were already in the middle of it. We had been working on it for uh, seven, eight months at that point. So um, we had had a uh, an announce. We had announced a, a reunion show. We were working on a new record together. I mean, there was a lot of things we were in the middle of. He and I were also longtime business partners. For those of you who don't know. Um, back in 2003, Chester joined myself and Thora in our, our main company, Club Tattoo, and became a, a full uh, ride-or-die business partner up until the moment he left the planet. And um, he was a great, not only a great friend, he was a really great business partner, too. He was a lot of fun to work with. He was so creative. So, yeah, we did a lot of things together. Yeah, no, and I love it. And, and, you know, thanks for taking a second to kind of share that a little bit because, uh, you know, I'm sure that there's somebody who's listening who, who kind of needed to hear that and needed to hear that advice. But I'm glad that you, you know, kind of segued in there because that's where I wanted to go next because I know my listeners are going to love this because I had a, a somewhat similar guest back in episode 115 
uh, Charlie Bales of ABC Fine Wine and Spirits. And, and when I say similar, you two and, and, and Thora's in there, we're going to be interviewing Thora. I think she's going to come in about 10 episodes after you. So listeners, you'll get to hear the, the other half of the dynamic duo in about 10 episodes or so. Um, More interesting than I am. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see. I said she's better looking. How about that? Okay, I'll give you that. So you two, you and Charlie and, and Thor as well, uh, set out to kind of reinvent uh, two different segments. His was kind of liquor stores, and he wanted to take them from being these kind of dark, dank, seedy things to being experiences for people that, that people could literally take their family and not feel like it was some nasty business that they were going to. And you kind of did the same thing for uh, Tattoo Studios, right? Yeah, that's exactly what we did. We tried to elevate the entire platform and the overall industry uh, perception at the time when we got into it was not a good one. People thought of tattoo and piercing as a very seedy, underground, kind of rebellious lifestyle, and we eventually pushed it to the mainstream. We were one of the catalysts in doing that. You know, TV and, and professional sports, in my opinion, were the main things that brought it to the mainstream. But once it got there, the perception was no longer rebellious. It became lifestyle and fashion. And we were at the forefront of that and able to take advantage of it because our studios were so aesthetically um, well thought through and gave the client a complete different experience than what they were used to having in traditional tattoo and piercing studios. Well, you know, and as a Marine, uh, especially in the late 90s, kind of the time frame you were getting set up there, um, that was my experiences with tattoo parlors, right? You know, most bases in states where tattoos were legal um in south carolina in the late 90s it was illegal you couldn't get a tattoo you had to go over to georgia to get a tattoo um but that was kind of my experiences with a lot of tattoo parlors and and so what got you kind of that aha moment hey i can make this something different well initially when we decided to open up the shop i wanted it to be different at the time i believe there were seven or eight tattoo studios or tattoo parlors in Arizona in 1995. I didn't, I didn't like the biker-esque feel. I was never a biker and never really fit into my um, personal style. I just didn't like it. It felt, it, it just wasn't for me. Uh, and and doing, knowing what the industry was at the time, I knew right away I wanted to be different. So we took what was traditionally called Tattoo Flash, which were the tattoo designs. All of the parlors I had been in had them up on the walls in dusty old dirty frames. We decided to laminate them and put them in books and lay them out and make it more of an art gallery feel. That was the initial intent was we wanted it to kind of look like a, like a nice hair salon or an art gallery. So really white walls, really well lit, private rooms, the whole deal. And it eventually um, kind of evolved into, okay, this is its own thing. This no longer looks like an art gallery or a hair salon. It looks like Club Tattoo and Club Tattoo became a brand through developing its own um, customized millwork and customized jewelry cases and customized displays and branding on aftercare products and all these little details that we put into the aesthetic and experience, we became our own thing. And that you know, didn't happen overnight. That wasn't a light bulb moment that said, this is exactly what we're going to be. I mean, it, it was an evolution over time of incrementally improving our client's experience and the perception of what we are was what drove us to become who we became. No, I love that. And, and you didn't just pioneer 
like the the experience if i read right in the book now i don't know if this was like completely your invention or if this was an old uh tactic that you modernized uh but you kind of i'll just say invented like the the subdermal piercings right I was one of the inventors, so my product, I did invent my product and, and, and have a patent on it. Uh, it's called a microdermal anchor. There were a couple of other guys um, tinkering around, Steve Hayworth being one of them, uh, Pat Pruitt being another one, um, that were that were working on some subdermal uh, ideas. They didn't do quite what I did with it. Um, and now the industry, you know, became a, a stalwart in the industry as far as products go. Uh, in the piercing side. So, yeah, I've paid my dues on the piercing side. I was a body piercer for many years and d- developed and designed jewelry, um, developed and designed um, different piercings, came up with a, a lot of innovations in that aspect of the industry, along with being an entrepreneur at the same time. So in kind of the, the entrepreneurial CEO circles, w- when you walk in and you've got the tattoos and you've kind of got the edgy style a little bit, like, how are you received amongst your peers? Uh, not well, initially. Uh, you know, back in the, when I started to become what I would say the CEO of Club Tattoo, even though I always have been, I developed that role over time. And I feel like I really, truly came into my own around, I would say, probably 2008, 2009, in understanding what it was that a CEO was supposed to be doing and running my company accordingly. Uh, you know, I had many bank. I've dealt, um, I don't know, I, I want to say I've, I've dealt with five different billionaires on different projects. Um, I've dealt with several um, large, probably 15 or 20, very large um, equity and property companies. Um, so you go into those meetings in the early 2000s and you definitely are fighting an uphill battle visually from uh, your perception they have a preconceived notion of you not being very intelligent, not being able to articulate a position or argument very well, or even an overall understanding of how business operates and the needs and and, and um, things of that nature. So in the mid-2000s, I had to overcome a lot of that, but I'm able to do it very quickly. I can speak in those circles. I understand the, the lexicon of what's happening in the business world. Um, and now I don't find it as a disadvantage at all. I, I, I tend to swing it the other direction and use it to my advantage. If I walk into any meeting now and I, and I am um, um, underestimated, usually I can flip the script within a few minutes. Um, I just find out what it is, what, whatever they're hyper-focused on trying to tear me down on, and I can usually jump into that conversation and, and build it right back up and gain their confidence pretty quickly. I've done that in many different um, meetings. So I don't feel sorry for myself in that aspect. I, I knew it was a disadvantage early on. It was one of the things I chose. This was, I chose to look this way with full sleeve tattoos and piercings. I chose, I chose that as my lifestyle. I chose that as my brand and my business. So I wear it proudly and I don't excuse it on the way in. You know what I mean? It's one of those things that they, if they're sitting in a room with me, they find out very quickly that I can hold my own. No, I love it. And I think that speaks a lot to kind of the, this historical fluctuation with love and hate relationship uh, with tattoos, right? I mean, like back in the day, uh, tattoos 
were really kind of a status symbol amongst warrior cultures and and they told a story and 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 they actually kind of garnered some respect depending on on your culture and what the tattoo was that you had right 100 percent. it used to be a rite of passage in many different cultures and and even in america the whole under underground rebellious um rite of passage of getting a tattoo was it was certainly in the societal um was in this was in society at, the, at, at I would say all the way up until the late nineties. Then it became once it became a fashion statement, it lost that rite of passage um, for most people. It doesn't mean it lost it lost meaning because tattoos can be very deeply personal, very 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 meaningful. But at the same time, it's no longer this doesn't hold the same rite of passage that it once did in in the American and European cultures right now. Yeah, no, I spent a year in uh, Okinawa, Japan, and, uh, you know, it was it was very interesting to see the that culture's relationship with tattoos because, and I'm sure you've heard or, or seen the, the Japanese body suits, right? Of course. Yeah, and, and so for the folks who don't know, um, basically the Japanese body suit is, there are a lot of Japanese, like, business people that have tattoos that you'll never see because the way they get the tattoos on their body, like they, they stay underneath the suit because there's this still stigma with, with tattoos and the Yakuza. And, uh, but we're starting to see, as you said, tattoos are being more of a, uh, and piercings, more of a fashion symbol, more of a, uh, an accessory, like a, like a ring or like a necklace. And I think one of the reasons I kind of wanted to have this discussion before we dive deep in the book is I think a lot of people listening here are going to have to come to grips with that reality as we get new generations entering the workforce, moving their way up. And we're going to see tattooed people. We're going to see people with piercings in CEO positions or C-suite positions more and more. Do you believe that? I do. I think um, I think there are several things that have happened um, that, that that have made that possible. And, and and the first thing that I'll say is professional sports. Uh, in the late 1990s, early 2000s, you started seeing the NBA and the NFL specifically start to televise. Football games were one or two or three, and now almost all of the team members are are covered in tattoos. That started on, you know, there was a couple of guys I remember on the Sacramento Kings, one guy named Jason Williams, uh, and specifically that that was one of the first guys, maybe 2002, 2003. I might have my years wrong, but it's the way my memory works. You started seeing these things show up on TV. Then you started seeing television shows come out in around the 2004, um, 2003, 2005, in that area, where television shows started coming out about tattoos. I think the very first one was called Inked, and then it was Miami Inc., and then, of course, Kat Von D. And you saw this evolution on television that, of course, became Ink Master and all these other things. Once you saw it hit television with the TV show that was specifically predicated on tattoos, it turned a corner that, and, and it's never going to go back. You started to see 
people understand and talk about tattoos at the water cooler, so to speak, um, in a way that really hadn't been done before. Uh, I, I started to notice a about five years ago where we started seeing tattoos and piercings show up in, in um, commercial advertising. And that's when I knew we had really truly turned the mainstream corner as far as the acceptance. You start seeing brands that would never have identified with a tattoo or piercing. Um, and now it's their, their lead out in a TV commercial or a soda commercial or a, a print ad. You're starting to see um, – you know, business week that has, you know, guys in business suits showing off a little bit of their tattoos peeking out of their, of their, of their, um, of their suits. So I think that's really when we turned the corner was when the commercial advertising started to accept and implement, uh, those ideas into, into their, into their platforms. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and I think that's kind of led and aided to the fact that, uh, there's been a lot of great, artistry put into tattoos lately like you know a lot of people think about like some of the old quote-unquote prison tattoos or you know a dagger and a skull and all that kind of stuff but i mean there are some and i'll say museum quality artists in the tattoo world these days absolutely it's that's you know that's something that's really changed is the ability and aptitude of tattooers, um, you know, but, but it crosses both platforms, piercing as well. Um, piercing used to be this kind of crude um, baseline jewelry. Now you're starting to see gold, diamonds, sapphires, rubies, and it's become extremely fashionable to have, you know, a five or $6,000 piece of jewelry in your navel. That didn't exist 15 years ago or was extremely rare, I should say. Uh, so that's turned a corner in the last 10 years. But on the tattoo side, you see artists like Nico Hurtado and Carlos Torres and Steve Butcher and Randy Englehart and Boris. I mean, there's a list of 500 of them that I could go down that are just incredible artists in their own right. Not just tattooers, but artists. And, you know, many of them have full-on uh, side businesses where they sell their artwork alongside their tattooing, you know. So, um, you'll see guys that, and, and girls, I mean, the, the, the really cool thing is you're starting to see women penetrate this market, um, faster and faster, exponentially faster than it was five years ago. You're starting to really see it come on in a way that, you know, was, was pretty rare. It's pretty rare to have a female tattoo artist in your, in your tattoo shop 10 years ago. And now we have at least one, if not two or three in our studio, every studio we have has at least one female tattooer or piercer. So you've seen a lot of barriers being broken down. And a lot of that comes from the, uh, the things we just talked about with it, you know, initially the professional sports, then, then TV, then commercials, things of that nature. Yeah, no, I love it. I love it. So, so now that we've kind of established this evolution, if you will, um, let's, let's get into uh, brand renegades, our fearless path from startup to global brand. Now, you co-wrote this book with Thora, and it kind of, in a lot of ways, documents your journey with Club Tattoo, right? Yes, sir. We decided to write the book back in January. Actually, we, we finalized, we said yes to writing the book um, in January, and actually started writing it in March of 2020. Uh, we had had, we've been doing a lot of uh, public speaking up to that point together, and a lot of people were asking us, why didn't we have a book? Um, 
I, I had some help from a lady named Debbie Allen who, who helped me a lot with our, our public speaking and made, made me better uh, in public. And she made a connection with Entrepreneur Magazine, Entrepreneur Press, and said, hey, I have this couple here. They're really interesting, dynamic couple. I think they'd be great to write a book. And literally, I think she had me on the phone with the entrepreneur people within two or three days. They said, we love your story. Debbie has, you know, just gushed about you guys. We want you to write a book. So when I agreed to write the book, um, I sat down with Thora and we, we said, you know, here's what we here's here's what we agreed to write it on. And then uh, when COVID hit, it was like, oh, my God, we now now we have all this time sitting at home that we can't leave. And that's when we really developed uh, the book was was over the really the three months uh, of shutdown that we had. <laughs> it's amazing how uh, how the shutdown has created a lot of those opportunities for folks, huh? Yeah, you know, I mean, look, I mean, COVID was a scary shutdown for us. We we were really staring down the barrel of. I never. In the last five years before COVID, if you'd asked me if there was a chance I could go bankrupt, I think I arrogantly would have said absolutely not. And COVID brought me to reality. Everybody is at some form and space has a path to bankruptcy. Um, now, I could have lasted a year or so with my finances, but the last thing any anybody who, who who's has a business wants to do is spend everything they've made and saved, you know, for the last 20 years or whatever on just trying to survive in order to reopen. And that's what we were staring at. It was very scary. Well, yeah, I mean, cause you can't tell a DACA tattoo yet. I'm sure that technology is probably coming, uh, the way their robotics and, uh, AIs, uh, advancing. But, um, so let me kind of back up a little bit here before we get into the COVID stuff. Um, when you pitched this initial idea, like you, when you went to investors and said, Hey, I'm going to start this high end tattoo experience. Did they all buy in or did you get laughed out of a lot of rooms? Well, it depends on the room. You know, some people think it's crazy and some people, you know, we've dealt with some very high level, um, like I said, we've done business with five different billionaires and, and all of them came to us. I didn't seek, not one of them did I seek out. So they all got it um, at a very high level. It's the mid-tier guys that can't usually wrap their mind around it. And, and usually guys that are um, in charge of other people's money, so to speak. Um, they have a different conservative um, safety mechanisms and in, in maintaining the status quo with their investments. So sometimes they can't wrap their head around what I'm talking about or how the business model works and they see it as a fluke. Um, but generally I can, I can, I have a philosophy. I'm going to back up on that. I have a philosophy. I don't like to do business with people that don't understand or don't love what we do. Um, I've been put in those positions a few times where I feel like I'm going through with a business deal with somebody who doesn't really like what we're about. And I don't think I would get into that situation again. We've uh, had, had several opportunities to do other things and if some of the partners aren't kind of feeling it, it's like, you know what, if you guys aren't in this 100%, let's, we're just going to go do something else with someone else. Because when things get tough, it is really easy to quit if you don't love what you're doing and who you're doing it with. Um, and that's just kind of a philosophy that Thor and I have, have developed over the years. So, yeah, we have been laughed out of some rooms. And 
uh, generally proven some people wrong very quickly. And I think our business is pretty successful. Um, it's hard to argue that at this point. And uh, I think we've, we've developed uh, processes and strategies and business models that have been proven to work at this point. Well, I mean, I have to completely agree with you on that. And I think that kind of goes back to the the strength of having a great brand and a great set of services, uh, because I'm sure in some ways, the, the more recognized you became, the easier it became to find some of these opportunities. Because you, you have a very, um, I don't want to say this, you have a very small footprint that generates a ton of revenue because of how you run the business, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, we have six studios in Arizona, Las Vegas. The company does about $14 million a year. We have a lot of other real estate investments and some commercial commercial things that we've done um, that prop us up. We've got different licensing deals, and Thor and I have our hands in a lot of, lot of different business arenas, but our primary breadwinner is Club Tattoo. And like you said, I mean, when you think about businesses that, um, you know, they maybe have four or 500 employees and, and still generate the same amount of money as we do. So we do quite well. Um, and we, and we've, we've really developed a brand that, that speaks to a lot of people. A lot of people um, love it and seek it out. And, that, and that's very important. So when somebody is looking to get into a space like that and really create that level of brand, what is like, what is the key element to creating a brand that has that level of clout? Oh, wow. Um, Tough question, huh? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it requires a very long answer, but I, but I, what I think, what we realized about 15 years ago was that we weren't just a mom and pop tattoo studio. No matter how nice we were, we were, we realized that a lot of people go to an artist because they love the artist. And that's understandable. They go to the piercer because they love the piercer. And we have those diehards on our clientele base all day long. We really do. However, about 15 years ago, we realized that if we would lose an artist or, or a piercer or that identity, that, that specific um, talent under our umbrella, that we still would have the same clients, for the most part, coming back to our company to get work done by other artists or other piercers because they had developed a perception of quality and trust under the brand we had created. And that was that took a minute to digest intellectually like people are actually coming here not because it's convenient but because they trust the brand club tattoo and they know that club tattoo is going to have good tattoo artists and good piercers and good jewelry and we're going to service a standard that they not only understand but are searching for and are there other good tattoo artists out there of course they are that's not the argument the the the, the point that I'm trying to make that actually helped us understand we were a brand was that this was the specific standard and identity that they wanted to search out 
when getting their tattoo. Yes, there's plenty of good tattooers out there. Equal as it, equal and or better than tattoo than some of the tattooers we had in our company, but they were still coming back to us because they identified with our brand. No, I love that. That is extremely uh, an extremely powerful statement there because yeah, when people keep coming back, uh, that that tells you everything you need to know, and and that tells you how strong your brand is and had to let's fast forward back to covid for a second that had to give you some level of comfort going into lockdowns that whenever this was over that people would come back right i think my fear was that even i mean there was no way to know that it was going to be one month two weeks four months six months in vegas our stores didn't come back to 100% occupancy until two months ago. So you're talking about 15 months. My fear was that the average consumer wouldn't have the money to go out and spend. You know, I thought we might be looking at a real depressionist economy post-COVID. Now, this is during COVID. I don't think that way now. But at the time, I was very scared that society was about to change economically for the worse uh, coming out of it. That was my biggest fear. Well, yeah, and it was, I mean, with everything that's still going on here, we're, like you said, we're 15, 16 months into this now. Uh, actually, we're a little bit longer than that. Uh, but, you know, there's all these talks of variants, and, and there, it's still kind of lingering over your head a little bit, I'm sure. But I, I guess the thing I want uh, listeners to take away from this is we're talking about here is when you have that strong brand, when you have that belief and you have that customer buy-in, that kind of helps you with that resiliency piece quite a bit, right? Absolutely. People have known that you're going to produce quality for whatever it is that they want. What we found, you know, to our surprise was, you know, and we talk about it in the book with Thor and I, you know, once we got past the shock and awe of being shut down, we decided we were going to invest a lot of money back into our businesses. We did full remodels. We bought commercial HEPA filtration. We made everything safer. We made the customer experience even better than it was before um, because we bet on ourselves. But what ended up happening was when we were able to reopen, our business shot through the roof. And I don't mean by like 5%, 10%. We were up 47% after we reopened for COVID. Now, that's not a normal growth rate, right? Um, we've seen years where we've grown 15, 18% on the high. Those were, those are ridiculously large growth rates, but to be up 47% across the board at our stores, some of our stores are up over 50%, but on average, we were up 47% on the year. Once we were able to reopen it after COVID, that was the, the, the moment that I said, okay, we're going to be okay. And not only we are, are we going to be okay? We have developed a new level of trust with our clients because of how we held ourselves during COVID, the reinvestments that we did and the consumer mentality coming out of it. No, I love that. I love that. So again, uh, listeners, we're with Sean Dowdell of Club Tattoo and one half of the author team uh, of Brand Renegades, our fearless path from startup to global brand. Now, I love the way you break this down kind of 
really bite-sized chunks in the book. There's a lot of great information in the book. And uh, we've touched on some of it already. But there's one thing in here that I really love. Chapter 9, add, and I like the way you trick folks with the title, add F with a little uh, all the little symbols to your brand vocabulary, and then you let them off the hook and you tell them that it's uh, failure that you're talking about. So why is failure an important word to add uh, to your brand vocabulary? I'll tell you why. Because I started, I started reading a lot of books back in 2007, 2006. I, I, li- I actually listened to audiobooks. That's one of my favorite things to do. I digest about a book a week at this point. And I started reading a lot of these business books. And I noticed there was this trend going on with all these, all these authors talking about, you know, I've never failed a day in my life. I look at it as a learning experience. And I just I said to myself, this is such bullshit. Um, of course you failed. And, I, and the more I went down that, you know, that rabbit hole, I came to the, to the, to the, uh, I guess I, I came to the crossroads. I was like, am I going to be a bullshitter like these other people when they're talking about failure? Or am I going to own it and talk about it in real terms with people when I'm around them? And when I started doing a lot of public speaking before I actually wrote my book, um, my first book, Tattoo Millionaire, I started talking about failure and it's kind of just developed and it's kind of now it's a cornerstone of, of talking points for us is, you know, we've failed a lot. I've made a lot of huge mistakes and I've learned a ton from them. And I think that if you use failure as a way to learn and a way to propel your business forward, then that's an intelligent thing. It's not a shameful thing to own and admit failure. Uh, and I think the only thing that happens when you're denying failure, especially when it's very obvious that it's failure, is you're just you're you're fooling yourself, you're bullshitting yourself, and that's not the kind of guy I am. I'd rather own it, figure out what I need to change, and move forward. Uh, and and a lot you know a lot of that came through um, Tony Robbins as well. I'm a big Tony Robbins fan, um, and he he really opened my eyes to a lot of the ways that I think about myself and the way I act and react and owning your failures, owning your behaviors is a big, big thing that I get out of Tony's stuff. Yeah, no. And I think that's a critical piece there because that seems to be the one thing that really does separate a lot of, I won't say successful people from non-successful because there are some successful people that can still bullshit their way through uh, not having failed. But it's, it's the successful people that can build a great brand that people trust in. Uh, like Mark Cuban, you know, he, he said it a hundred times and he'll probably say it a hundred more, if not more. You know, I'm not where I am because I'm luckier than you. I'm not where I am because of anything other than the fact that I've failed more than you and I've kept going. And, and that's, I think, really what you're saying here is it's okay to fail, learn, adjust, and move forward. I would even I would even one up that if somebody were asking me to invest in their business and they had not had any massive moments of adversity, i.e., failures, I would probably be apprehensive to uh, invest because I want to know as a, as investing into your business or business uh, partnering up with a business, I want to know how you handle failures because it says a lot. It's easy to be awesome when things are good. It's easy to high five and hug your partners when everyone's making money. It's when things get rough 
and everyone's got to dig into their own pockets because things aren't penciling out the way you thought they would, that you start to really understand everyone's character. And people start to make excuses and start to point fingers at other people and start to uh, dodge accountability. Um, those are things that really show up very quickly and very hard during uh, a failure. So I think those are important moments to not only check yourself, but to check the people you're in business with. Oh, I love it. I love it. And it, it, it's a character builder, right? I mean, because when you failed and you're able to come back and, and take the the next step to the next level, like you, you know that you can do it again. And if needs be, you can do it again. And, and that keeps that, uh, that keeps that drive going because when a COVID hits, you know, it's going to suck, but you know, it's not going to be a world ender because you know, you have the ability to come back and do something again. Right. Yeah. I mean, of course anybody can go out and do it again. I don't, I don't particularly want to, um, you know, that's a large mountain you're talking about climbing again. Um, but yeah, I know deep down that I could. Uh, I think for me, you know, I remember one very specific failure when Thor and I um, were deciding to close. We had opened up a store on Pier 39. We talk about this in the book. Um, we spent $2 million on building this store. And we're, we're, we were just having problem after problem out there. We couldn't keep employees. But the landlord was a nightmare. The city was a nightmare. Um, just a piece, piece of small business advice for all entrepreneurs out there. Don't ever, ever, ever open a small business brick and mortar in the city of San Francisco. Do not do it for any reason. Um, that aside, I remember Thor and I we were taking a shower together and we were just, you know, going over all the issues we we're having. We were both crying in the, sh in the shower, realizing we had to come to the, to the moment of closure with that, that store. And I said, you know what, you know, I, I think that this, as hard as this is, I'm grateful because we're able to survive this. Like this would crush a lot of people. A lot of people would like if, a lot of small business owners, if they were to have done this with their first business and spent everything they had and guaranteed loans with their house and everything else, I mean, they, they'd be screwed and they couldn't survive that financially. They couldn't financially survive that. So I said to her, we're both literally crying in the shower together. And I said, I'm actually grateful. I'm grateful that I know we're going to survive this. And it's not a hope we're going to survive this. I know we can survive this. I'm grateful to be in a position that is allowing us to close the store on our terms, take $2 million punch in the mouth, and still get up tomorrow and be, be able to succeed in other areas. And she just looked at me like I was crazy. But I remember that morning, that, that morning very well. Um, just finding gratitude. And that's something else I pulled from Tony Robbins. He's like, find, you know, find gratitude in moments of, of, of hardship. And, and it's hard to be angry or sad or, or, or it's hard to have feelings of negativity during moments of gratitude. It's, they, they, they physically can't coexist the same moment in your mind. So that gratitude will pull you out of those moments of negativity. I love that. I love that. I have, of course, it's one of those things that's easier said than done, but I agree with it a hundred percent. Now you follow up the book uh, with the very next chapter with the title, be powerful leaders, not bosses. When you say that, what do you mean? 
Um, I, I think there's a lot of lot of things that I mean. Uh, you know, when we wrote that, we we talk. Thor and I talk about being better leaders and showing by example. And I still will walk into our stores now and pick up, uh, you know, pick up trash on the ground or, or, or clean off a counter or clean a, you know, clean a jewelry case or do things like that. I still am immersed into our company and I care about our company. And I think by doing those things, um, you know, I'll grab a broom and, and, and sweep something up out in the parking lot and I'll have a staff member that'll say, don't do that. I, I can do that. I can do that. You shouldn't be doing that. And I say, of course I, of course I can be doing that. Um, I'm not afraid to get my hands dirty and, and lead by example. That's first and foremost. And as a as a as a leader, it's important not to try to make yourself look better than everybody else. And I I see that in a lot of businesses, um, where and not necessarily the business owners. I see this in like a high tier management sometimes where they are so caught up in being everyone's boss that they're, they've are they lost sight of what it means to lead people to becoming better staff members, uh, employees, uh, business assets, and those things. So um, that's really what we mean in the book. We're talking about lead by example. Don't be afraid to get your hands dirty, and don't put yourself ahead or, or in front of anybody else. Don't You're no better than anybody else. You're in a different position. Maybe you're in a different position in life. There's a lot of ancillary um, circumstances that feed into that. Everyone has their own story. Try to be a better person. Try to lead by example. That is outstanding advice. Well, Sean, we've been chatting here for a little under 45 minutes, and uh, I don't know about you, but this has been a great conversation. I want to say uh, thank you for having it with me so far. Oh, well, thanks for having me on, and it has been a great conversation, and I, I really appreciate you giving me the time. Oh, I love it. Well, before we uh, close out here, is there anything that we didn't get a chance to touch on that you want to leave listeners with? Well, you know, my wife and I, there's a whole separate side, uh, a whole separate dynamic to to my journey, and that is my wife, Thora. So uh, it's important to go out and check out the book, Brand Renegades. There's, I think it's an... Uh, uh, I think it's a valuable book for a lot of small business owners. If you've ever been thinking about opening a small business, there's a lot of different concepts that we that we take and we apply to the small business model. We talk about different radiuses and making sure that you can take these big business concepts and redact them to um, a stage where it actually makes sense in your company and how to apply those processes and um, different ideas. So that's something that I just want to make sure everyone understands that the book is about. It's really meant as a helpful guide uh, for small business entrepreneurs. And that's really the motivation behind it. No, I love it. And I will agree, uh, you know, listeners, you need to go out and grab a copy of Brand Renegades. There's a lot of great content in there. We really just kind of skimmed the surface on some of it. There's a whole lot of content left in there. Um, But on that note, if people want to maybe have you come out and speak, they want to get a copy of the book, they want to find out more about Club Tattoo um, and all your other ventures, what's a good place for them to uh, to start looking for all that? So uh, you can basically find us in many different arenas, but businessgamechangers.com is our consulting business and our, our authorships. Um, everything is staged there for, for that outside of our of our. Uh, brick and mortar businesses. So you can find us at clubtattoo.com. Uh, we have a, a series of bars that we're opening called drinked, uh, drinkbar.com, uh, 
clubtattoo.com. Um, you know, you can find us on our socials, Sean and Thora Dowdell. Uh, you can find us in Barnes and Noble. I mean, we're really all over the place through Entrepreneur Magazine, Entrepreneur Press. Um, just reach out, say hi, and uh, hopefully we can offer something of value to you. Love it. And folks, I'll have links to those in the show notes. You can just click on them. Um, Sean, one last question. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Um, any plans to expand out towards Indianapolis by chance? Uh, maybe not in Indianapolis, but we're, we're talking about some, uh, maybe possibly um, doing something in uh, Manhattan here uh, over, over the next year or so. Maybe, maybe Chicago, maybe Miami. Um, we've got a few our eye on a few different uh, expansion expansion options. Oh, good. Well, Chicago's fairly close, but uh, okay. Well, again, thank you very much for your time, and thank you for being a guest on the show. You're quite welcome. Thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. And listeners, thank you for spending time with Sean and I. Again, we'll get to hear uh, Thora's side coming up here in a few episodes. Um, but I really appreciate you and your time. You know, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns for me, you can reach out at burden.command at gmail.com. Make sure you get out there and subscribe, rate, review, and share the show so great guests like Sean uh, can get his message spread further and make the impact that he wants to make. Uh, get out there and grab a copy of Brand Renegades and keep doing all the great things that you do to show support for the show. I really appreciate it. And with that, thank you for your time, and I look forward to speaking with you all again in the next episode. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for Season 2 of the Wannabet Podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that Season 2 starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but Wannabet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. So no more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.